Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me say a word of prayer for us again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in this moment, we want to humble ourselves under your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts. May you convict us. May you encourage us. May we see Jesus clearly. And we ask that you would fill us with hope and joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I preached a message on how Luke wanted to show how God was at work in the church of his day. When he addresses Theophilus, he was saying very carefully, I wrote this book so that you could be certain concerning the things you have been taught. And when you look at the beginning of Acts, the other book that Luke wrote in the New Testament, you can begin to see his concern is not just with history, but with what God is doing within the church so that Theophilus and other early believers could be part of what God was doing, so that they could know God in a personal way, so that they could recognize God's hand. And I argued last week that God is still at work, and in order to see his work in our church and around the world, we need to begin by looking at the life of Jesus. If you want to know what God is doing, you need to know what God has done in the past and what he said he would do. Otherwise, you cannot be certain when someone comes to you and says, God told me this. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But if you look at his word and you know what God says he will do, you can respond to those claims, not out of naivety, not out of a blind faith, but out of the conviction that God will always work to fulfill his promises. And so I want us today to live with the expectancy that God is at work here in our church, but we will never know what he's doing unless we know what he has done and what he has said he will do. And so I want to invite you with me to look at the life of Jesus Christ throughout the Gospel of Luke so that we can have the expectation that God will continue to do great things in us and in the church around the world. But here's the thing. As we talk about what God is doing on a big scale, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like some of the big things that God is doing have little or nothing to do with your life? You might know the truth, the great eternal truth, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. 
You might know that Jesus said he would return one day, and you might believe that and expect to see it. But the question that each of us should wrestle with is what does that have to do when you read of of the floods that are taking place in North Carolina, or when you hear bad news from your doctor, or when you're in a marriage that's in trouble, or what do you do when you pray for your kids that they would come back to Christ and instead they walk further away from Him? What do you do As a young couple, if you want to have a baby and you find out that you can't. What does God's plan have to do with an addiction to pornography or to painkillers? And what does God's sovereignty mean when you're crippled by loneliness? This morning, I want to preach from the Gospel of Luke and show that God's plan gives His people hope And how our prayers in particular are part of God's plan. And so if you're discouraged today because God's plan seems distant and irrelevant to you and it does not give you much hope, my prayer is that you will be encouraged. If you are anxious to see God work in our day, my prayer is that you will be energized to continue in prayer. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, you find a group of people who have been waiting for God to do something for a very long time. And as Luke writes his book about Jesus, he begins 30 years before Jesus is born, and he wants to show you that God was already at work And that that began with the people of God in prayer. I want to invite you, open your Bibles, look with me at Luke chapter 1, or go there on your phone, whatever whatever works for you. I want to encourage you to see the things that I'm talking about in the text today. And the first thing that I want to point out is verses 5 through 10 of Luke chapter 1. Notice the personal prayers of God's people. Notice the personal prayers of God's people. Read with me starting in verse 5. Luke says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, a couple of things that I I want to say right at the beginning of this. Since we just went through the entire book of Exodus, you might remember the book of Exodus begins with the cries of God's oppressed people. In Exodus, the Israelites have endured slavery for 400 years and they are crying out for a deliverer. Their prayers are answered as God saves them. And some of the, one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture, I think, is when it describes the groaning of their hearts and it says, God heard them, and he answered their prayers, and he sent them a deliverer. And you see the exact same thing happening in the book of Luke. When Luke begins his story, 
It has been 400 years since God sent a prophet to his people. God's people have suffered under the thumb of both the Greeks and the Romans. There has been 400 years of silence from God. 400 years of people praying and for 400 years God did not reply in any discernible way. And you can imagine knowing the promises of God, knowing the promises of his blessing, and you can imagine people longing to see God do something and yet in their day-to-day life they get married, they get sick. People died. People hoped for the Messiah to come, and for 400 years, he did not come. That means several generations of people hoped for something that they did not see. Israel, at that time, served foreign kings. One of them even walked into the temple and desecrated the altar, sacrificed a pig on it, and God did nothing. There were faithful people during those times, but as we'll see, When Luke begins his gospel, the religious leaders of the day were more harmful than helpful. And so the faithful continued, life went on, and they waited, and they prayed. And so when Luke describes Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth as righteous but childless, he's doing two things. Number one, he's showing that there are still righteous people in this time. If you read the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, it is a brutal book that describes terrible conditions as God's people lived for themselves rather than God. And God closes the Old Testament. You can almost hear a thud as he says, no more, no more. And so when Luke describes righteous people, he's letting you know in the midst of a dark hour, There were people who believed the promises of God, who were waiting and praying. But he says they're childless. And although we identify with that to a certain extent, that means not only that they lack someone to care for them, it also means they are not experiencing God's clearly promised blessings to righteous people in the Old Testament. If you're an Old Testament saint and you read the Bible, you understand God promises children for those who keep his covenant. And they don't have children. So in multiple ways, they know the promises of God, but they are not living with the blessings of God. You might think of Abraham and Sarah, who are promised a child, but they're too old to conceive. So Abraham wonders if God will fulfill his promise. You might think of Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel who weeps for a son. But here's the thing. That's not totally wrong. I think, I think we're intended to make those connections and to recognize that this is something that God has promised them and they haven't received it. But the main point of Luke telling us that they're childless is not sorrow over their immediate family. Luke mentions this because he's putting in tension a promise from God and an obedient couple that has not received the promise. They are, Elizabeth and and Zechariah both, are righteous people who are crying out to God to save the entire nation not just their family. 
So when Zechariah and the people pray, and you see in uh, verse 10, the whole multitude of people were praying outside the, the sanctuary where he would have been burning incense. They are praying for the salvation of Israel. Zechariah is almost certainly not praying for a baby. In fact, we'll see in just a moment when the angel tells Zechariah his prayer has been answered and he's going to have a son, it doesn't even seem to compute. It doesn't even seem to register because Zechariah did not believe that it was possible for his wife to have a child. And while I think we've all been guilty of praying for things and at the same time doubting that God would answer our prayers, I don't think that's what happened here. Zechariah's prayer request and the prayers of the people who were surrounding the temple as he burns incense is that God would rescue Israel. They are praying for national salvation, for spiritual reformation and revival. They see how dark the times they live in are, and they want for all people to come back to God, to repent. They want the blessings that God promised to Abraham and David, and they long for a Messiah. And they might have remembered a verse that, that many of you are familiar with, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That is what Zechariah and the people would have been praying. That is a promise they could have clung to in a very literal way. They were the chosen people of God. They longed to see God heal and restore their land. And in the most exciting way possible, God answered their prayers in an absolutely stunning way. And the most amazing thing that Luke shows over and over again is after 400 years of silence, God speaks. And you can see how personal his answer is. So, so we've seen the personal prayers of God's people. Now notice the personal answer that God gives. Look with me at verses 11 through 17. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. By the way, I love the small details that Luke gives. Like it's the right side, not the left side. Get this picture straight in your head. He says, do not, excuse me, verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This answer is a surprising mixture of God's universal plan for salvation, with a very personal blessing for Zechariah and his wife. The people are praying for the Messiah to save them, and an angel appears promising a baby boy to Zechariah and his wife. But that baby is not the Messiah. The angel says that this baby is to be named John, which means Yahweh is gracious. And this baby 
when he becomes a man, will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Think for a moment, if you remember your Old Testament, Elijah also preaches in a dark time when nearly the entire nation has turned their backs on God and they are worshiping false idols. Elijah loudly and powerfully preaches a message of repentance and says, turn back to the one true God. Worship the Lord your God. He is God. And he loudly, in a time when it was not popular or easy, preached a message of repentance. This very specifically shows that God is working out his plan. I mentioned the prophet Malachi just a moment ago. He is the last prophet to speak in the Old Testament, and he says very clearly that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And the angel is saying, John is Elijah. He is fulfilling that prophetic role. And John's fiery preaching will prepare God's people for the coming Messiah. This is a universal plan. Families he says, will be reunited and people who are currently disobeying the Lord will turn and begin to obey as a result of John's preaching. In other words, John is tilling the soil so that when Jesus comes, the people are ready to hear the word that Jesus preaches and it will go deep and it will produce fruit. In other words, the angel is telling Zechariah, revival is coming and it's going to come through your baby boy and when Zechariah hears that he struggles to believe notice the personal doubt that you see in verses 18 to 23 read with me and Zechariah said to the angel how shall I know this for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years and the angel answered him I am Gabriel I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. When Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? He is asking for proof from a doubting heart. He wants a sign from God, and he actually gives a reason for not believing. He says he and his wife are old. In other words, he's not just struggling to believe. He is actively offering reasons that Gabriel's words cannot be true. And this means not only is he doubting that he'll have a son, he's doubting that God will save his people. So the whole thing is intimately connected. He's saying, God... You cannot use me and my wife to save your people. We are too old. And I find this this sin in Zechariah's life to be both convicting and in a way encouraging. Encouraging because the Bible has just called Zechariah a righteous man. Which means... That righteous people, people who hear the Lord's promises and want to believe them, will battle with the sin of unbelief. 
And yet it's also convicting because it's easy in my own heart, and I'm sure it is easy for you to become discouraged and to doubt God's willingness and even his ability to work miracles in our lives, especially when you have been praying for a long time and it seems like God is saying, wait, or maybe even no. Let me ask you, do you doubt that God can use you? Some of you feel that you are too old to serve the Lord, to be honest. I have heard from a few who have said that. Some of you feel like it's someone else's responsibility to serve the Lord. But let me ask you, what if God calls you to serve him? Will you tell him no? God can and will use you in spite of your objections. The scriptures clearly teach God has given every believer to the church. All of us are gifted for service. All of us are called to serve in some way. So don't let discouragement blind you to the ways that God wants to use you. Do not doubt that God is at work and do not dismiss the possibility that he will use you. Even if you are being a faithful Christian, it is easy to become discouraged and to dismiss what God is going to do. There is in this passage a rebuke here for you and for me. We ought to believe the word of God. Paul says, the gospel is the power of God. It is powerful in every time, in every place, in every culture. We do not need to be ashamed of it. And we ought not dismiss it just because we haven't seen the power that we would like to see. We ought to wait and have an attitude of trust and of humble obedience and be ready to do whatever the Lord calls us to do in our own time. And you see, the fulfillment that the angel said would come ultimately turns into praise In Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth. So notice the personal praise that pours out of Elizabeth in verses 24 and 25. It says, After these days, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You get a sense of how deeply personal it was for a woman to be barren in this culture. Today, it is, it is still a bitter pain for couples that would like to have children and are unable. But in their day, it was commonly believed that a couple who was unable to conceive had somehow sinned, whether their sin was known or not. Because again and again, God promises throughout the Old Testament that righteous and faithful people in the nation of Israel will experience the blessings of children. So if you don't experience that blessing, the assumption then is you must not be righteous and faithful. And she would have borne a certain stigma and people 
people would have assumed certain things about her. And there is a deep hurt that she carried constantly. And so when God worked out his universal plan and in God's sovereign will, he blessed them with a child, it was an enormous weight that was lifted off of her shoulders and it turned into beautiful praise as she realizes how deeply personal the plan of God can affect any one of us, but it affected her so deeply and so personally in this way. This is where you sense how intimately personal God's plan for salvation for each of us is. It can seem distant and irrelevant when you think about the cosmic size of our God. How the universe cannot contain him. But these verses show God's salvation touches our souls and heals our deepest hurts. Our greatest joy is that God himself is working out his salvation. When he heals this particular family, you get an insight into what salvation means for each of us. Apart from Christ, each of us is alone and cut off from God. We have no hope and we have no future. But through Jesus, we are welcomed into God's family. Our sins are forgiven and we are given a home. But please do not misunderstand this message. God's universal plan does not give each of us the things that our hearts long for. There were many women in Israel who remained barren and died without children. God does not promise that everyone will have children. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Job is written to know that you cannot look at a person's life and assume that evil happens as a result of their sin. So here's the question that we need to answer. Why does Luke put this story at the beginning of his gospel? Why is there so much information on John the Baptist's parents? Well, here's what I believe, and here's why I think it matters for me and for you today. The joy that they experience and the blessings that they experience are a sort of down payment on the blessings that come with the Messiah. Luke is foreshadowing the joy that comes through Jesus. And what better way to show how tangible that joy is than a couple who never dreamed of having a child discovering that they would have a little boy. Can you imagine the tears that they shed, tears of joy as they held their baby in their arms? As they, Jack has just started walking this week and you see him toddling around And they both had completely given up hope that they would ever have children. That kind of tangible joy that each of you can see and appreciate as babies are born to your friends and your family, that kind of joy is a tangible experience of the blessing of God. And whether or not you have children or get married or have all of your prayers answered in the way that you would like them to be answered is irrelevant to God's universal plan of salvation. And if you are trusting in Christ, that joy that they have is just a little taste of what you and I will one day have in Christ Jesus. I think part of what that verse meant when the scripture says, 
that the ministry of John would call the hearts of fathers to return to their children. It meant that old men who were struggling to believe would find new hope and new joy. And God would renew and bless families again as they looked to his hope. And as I close this message, I want to return to the issue of feeling like God's plan is maybe irrelevant to your life. Because what do you do if that's where your heart is? What do you do if you've come here today in a place of discouragement? As I was getting ready for this message, I, I thought of a missionary to China. Her name was, was Gladys. And she served for seven or eight years, maybe a decade, happily single. Never even thought about being married or, or wanting to be married. But then there was another couple that came and served alongside her, next to her. And she saw how their marriage was a blessing to each of them. And she thought, God, I would like a husband. And so she prayed. And she prayed, like sometimes missionaries pray with such great faith. And so specifically, she said, God, I need you to call a man from England, send him to China, and have him propose. This is the first case that I think I've ever heard of a male-ordered groom. It, It doesn't normally work that way, right? She was talking to Elizabeth Elliot at the end of her life, and she said, Elizabeth, I believe God answered prayer. I believe God called that man. And you know what? He never came. He never came. The point is, there are faithful people in our day who do not receive the things that they ask for. When they ask for them in faith, when they ask for them the best of their abilities, according to the will of God, sometimes they do not get what they are asking for. Some of you are taking care of aging parents and failing health. Some of you deal with deep loneliness. Some of you are in troubled marriages. Some of you have serious financial trouble and the hope of Jesus may seem totally irrelevant as you open your bills and realize that again, you cannot pay them. But the hope of Jesus is never irrelevant. Some of the longings that we have, God knows are not good for us. Maybe financial security would lead you to a pride that would cut you off from seeking the Lord. Maybe the the marriage and family that you've always wanted would lead you to feeling no need for God whatsoever. Sometimes God says no so that he can spare us from possible idols and teach us to long for better things. Sometimes there are things that break our hearts that we pray for that are not wrong or bad. Wanting to see a child come back to the Lord wanting to see a marriage healed. And the heartache that we experience as God says, wait or no, should remind us that this fallen, broken world is not our home. Paul says this light and momentary affliction, and he's speaking about some of the deepest hurts in the world when he says that. He doesn't mean it to to make you feel irrelevant or unimportant. What he's saying is this light and momentary affliction, as bad and awful as it is, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. 
the depth of your present sadness cannot compare with the flood of future glory. So I want to encourage you to turn your sorrow, your fear, and your anxiety, and even your depression into prayer. Remember the people who were faithfully praying outside the temple when God had been silent for 400 years. What do you pray for? Pray for Jesus to come and fix this mess. Pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to purify His church. And yes, absolutely, pray for all of the things that make you anxious. You have a heavenly Father who loves you. Go ahead and ask God for the things that you desire deeply. I am sure that Elizabeth prayed and asked for a son. But just know that if God says no or not now, it does not mean that he is not listening. He is listening. His plans never fail, and his plan is good. I want to ask each of you this morning to remember that our hope is not in the things we wish and pray for. Our hope is that our sins are forgiven and we have an eternal home with the Lord. Think often about our hope that Jesus is returning. And I want to encourage you, if you have a hard time thinking about that, read those beautiful passages in Revelation where God promises to wipe our tears. Some of those tears are from divorced people. Some of those tears are from barren women. Some of them are from alcoholics who just want to stop drinking but can't. Some of them are from drug abusers. Some of them are from victims of sexual abuse. There are countless reasons that people cry. And those are the tears that God is wiping in Revelation when our Lord Jesus comes back. While we wait for that future hope, while we pray for it, When we say things like, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we say, thy kingdom come. While we pray those prayers that Jesus taught us to preach. We may wait. We may wait a long time. And so while we wait for those future hopes. Remember the present promises of God. Remember the forgiveness that God offers you in Christ Jesus. No. That no matter what happens around you, you can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Know that your heavenly Father loves you. He has shown His love clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. Focus on what God has called you to be in the church. You are a brother. You are a sister. You are part of a family. Let me urge you. God has called you and gifted you To serve Jesus Christ in the church. Let me encourage you to find your fulfillment there. Think about those people outside the temple. They were faithfully praying after 400 years of silence. And in the way God answered that prayers, there was a strange mingling of the deep personal longings of Zechariah and his wife, along with the eternal purposes of God to bless all his people. God heard 
their prayers. And he hears ours as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, many of us have burdens. Some of them we don't even want to speak about in church. Lord, we lift them up to you now. Father, we ask that you would heal our broken hearts in Christ Jesus, Lord. For those who are burdened with the weight of sin, assure us of your forgiveness in Christ. Father, I pray that you would let us look to the return of Jesus. Let us remember where our hope is. And God, if we have put it in anything other than you, we repent. We confess that sometimes we hope in things that are less than you. Father, I pray that you would teach us to love you and long for you. Teach us to pray in the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us patient, make us humble. Fill us with joy as we wait for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.